All right. So we are in part 10, part 10 of our fearless series. We're going to wrap it up today. We've been, this was going to be a, like a six part series. I don't know what happened. It just kept growing and getting bigger and bigger. Uh, there's just been a lot. We've seen David do, go through all sorts of stuff. He's been up and he's been down. He's been east and west and he's had all these different kinds of experiences and we've been along for the ride. Uh, moments of great, uh, of great glory and then moments of great shame and we've, we've been there with him. Uh, so I want to start today by asking a question. And it's a question that I think many of you might be able to relate to. And the question is this. How many of you have a friend or a family member who at some point in their life started dating someone and you might have turned to somebody else that you know and you might have asked the question, what does she see in him? Has anybody ever done that? Or or the other way, what does he see in her? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you look at somebody, you go, I don't I just don't know how that, that, that came together. My wife and I have a friend, a family friend, and uh, many years ago, and I'm going to scrub all the details so there's no way that my friend will be able to perceive that they're the subject of this illustration. Um, uh, we, have a, we, have, we had a family friend, we have a family friend that started dating a guy this years ago, and that was the question that we asked because this guy was okay. He was not a terrible guy, but it was just like, we just couldn't, did not compute. Like when we, we, we asked each other the question, like, what is she seeing him? I, I mean, I don't get it. Like he, 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 he wasn't a super bad guy, but there was just some things, some qualities and some traits that we saw that we just like, man, I just don't, just don't totally get that. Well, um, apparently she saw something because then they started dating and then they got engaged and then they got married and, and they live far away. So we don't really get to see him, but we see him on Facebook and they've got kids and they seem pretty happy. You know, I mean, most people seem happy on Facebook though. Let's be honest. We don't know. We don't know the real truth, but we've still asked that question. Huh? What does she, what does she see in him? When we've been exploring the life of David for the last 10 weeks, we've seen some moments of absolute sparkling moral brilliance, courage, where we go, man, I, 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 that is amazing. Like that is inspiring. That is, is something to emulate. But then we've also seen, because we've drilled down into the scripture, we, we've preached a few passages that often get skipped over. If you haven't been, if you haven't been following, uh, you'll have to go back and watch. But we followed a few passages where we see David take some dips into some moral darkness and some moral depravity, some, some, some decisions that he made that are not the kind of decisions that we want to aspire to. Tragic moments in his life, things that actually cause pain to other people and to himself. And so as we're exploring his life and as we're looking at, at the good stuff, but then we're spending some time in the bad stuff and we're really looking at some of the hard things and the, and the darker moments of his life, it makes me ask the question as I've been exploring this over the last you know, 10 weeks, and it also happens to be the title of my sermon today. It's the question, God, what do you see in him? Like, what was it, God, about David that you just loved him and established his kingdom to reign forever? And, and here we are 3,000 years later. We're talking about him. We're emulating him. We're, we're thinking about him. We're spending 10 weeks on a sermon about him. What was it about him? What did God see in him that made him so, so special? And if you're a, 
a, a church person or you've been around church in your life or you went to Sunday school, uh, you know, there's a, there's a tagline about David. There's a phrase about David that, that almost everybody knows if you grew up in church. And if, and, and if I start the phrase, I think you'll be able to finish it today because people will always say this about David. They say, well, David was a man after God's own heart. Like, that's just the thing. Everybody knows, like, David, so no matter what, you go, well, David was a man after God's own heart. Now, I have avoided using that phrase throughout the series because I wanted to focus on it today because it's, it's one of these phrases that, it, you know, when you're looking at his life, you go, first of all, what does it mean? And second of all, how did you become a man after God's own heart, right? Because we, we first see the phrase when, before David is even, before we, you know, even barely meet David, we see the phrase in 1 Samuel when Samuel goes to Saul, who was the king at that time, and he says to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, Saul, you've done a foolish thing. You've messed up, Saul. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And then he says, if you had kept it, if you had obeyed, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, Saul. Like, Saul, this could have been you. We could have been talking about Saul. It could have been you, Saul. But now your kingdom, he said, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, what's interesting to me is that this happens before anything else happens in the story. Like, this happens before David killed the giant. It happened before, and it certainly happened way before David sinned and took Bathsheba, another man's wife, and killed Uriah, and all this kind of stuff, all that crazy stuff. So on one, on one side of my mind, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe what it means is that David used to be a man after God's own heart. Like, he was a man after God's own heart at the beginning, and then he kind of fell off somewhere in, in, in the middle. But then you look at what's written uh, a, a thousand years after David's life, and you look at the book of Acts, and what you see is that the scripture says, of God, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So my question is, how do you, how do you become a, a man or a woman after God's own heart like David? Because I don't know about you, but, but that phrase, I want to be that. I want to be a person who is connected with God. I want to be a person who is intimate with God. And if you're here today, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you are just seeking or kind of peeking over the fence or coming from a different faith or no faith at all, there's, there's almost no one on the planet that doesn't in some way or another want to connect with the divine. There's, there's almost nobody on the planet that just says, I have no interest in understanding God or growing in a relationship with God or being connected to the creator. Throughout all time, throughout all history, we, we see humankind desiring to have some connection with that divine presence, that, that awe, that, 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 that we call him God. Whatever it is, we've always, always, throughout all time, throughout all cultures, wanted to be near that. We've all wanted to be a person after God's own heart. So I look at David's life and I go, okay, I want to understand what it is, because if I can understand what it is, then I can emulate it. I can do it myself. And so as I look through his life, we get clues. And, and, and my first thought as I'm studying David is I think, well, maybe, maybe it's one of his moral characters. Maybe it's his courage, right? I mean, David was a courageous guy. He did all these. He, he, he fought a bear, for goodness sake. I mean, he, he took out a lion. He took out a giant when nobody else would. He's got this great courage. So you go, well, maybe it's courage that, that makes us a man or a woman after God's own heart. 
But then you see in David's life some, some moments of great cowardice as well. Because like when his son sins and does something hor- horrifying, he's afraid to even confront him. He won't even go to him. He won't even, he's avoiding conflict. He's, he's hiding. He's, he's, he's lying. He's, 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 not, he's not stepping up when he needs to step up. So yes, he's a man of moral courage, but he's also a man of moral cowardice. Okay, so maybe it's, it can't be the courage. Maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's because Saul disobeyed God and David obeyed God. And, and you know, there, there are commentaries that talk about that and, and some sermons that, that discuss that. And it's partly right because sometimes David obeyed God. Sometimes God said, David, do this, uh, and David would do it. But then there were other moments in David's life of complete rebellion where he actually did the exact opposite of what God wanted him to do. By the way, God did not want David to marry eight wives and have a harem full of concubines. It's actually in Deuteronomy. It actually says, don't do that, okay? So every time David did that, that was disobedience. David, when, when David took Bathsheba, that was rebellion. When David killed Uriah the Hittite, that was disobedience. So you see a man who's sometimes obedient, and then sometimes he's not obedient. So, gosh, what is it? that makes him a man after God's own. Maybe it was his generosity. Maybe he had a a sort of magnanimity about him that, you know, that he would reach out to people and and, and be a a kind and generous and loving person. And he did sometimes. Like his his friend Jonathan, his friend Jonathan had a son whose legs were injured and David took him in. And, and took care of him and, and established his, his, uh, his house and, and gave him and, and took care of him, gave him money and, 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 you know, just really took the guy in under his wing. And you go, man, that, maybe that's it because that's beautiful. But then there were these moments of complete selfishness in David's life. And you go, man, the only thing he was thinking about, the only thing he was thinking about in that moment was himself, his desire, his want, his longing, what he wanted. So you look at a guy like David and you go, okay, man, you know, every good character quality he has, he also has the flip side of that coin. And there are, there are moments that thankfully the, the scripture actually displays for us and actually lets us see that are the opposite of the, of the moral character that we want, the integrity that we want in a, in a, in a king, right? So, so we see this guy that's just, he's both. And one piece of that that makes me feel inspired and encouraged is that that is you and that is me. All of us in our life will sometimes have moments where we go, nailed it. Like I completely did the right thing at the right time in a bad situation. Ah, I got that. But then each and every one of us are going to have moments where we just blow it. We're just going to fail. We're, we're going to have moral cowardice. There are going to be times when we're going to obey. And then there are going to be times when we're going to disobey. You know, hopefully as we grow in, in what's called sanctification, as we grow in, our, in the true reality of who we are, we start to do less bad things and more good things. But, but none of us are perfect. All of us have fallen short, the scripture says, of the glory of God. Sometimes we're generous. Sometimes, man, sometimes I'm generous. Sometimes I'm like, man, I'll give you the coat off my back. Other times I'm selfish, like in weird times, you know? Like if my wife wants a bite of my food, and I, I just, you know, that tuna sandwich, I prepared that. That's my tuna sandwich. Plus it's coronavirus, so there's just, it's like, no way. So, you know, but, but so we all have it. So what is it about David, if it's not like his sparkling moral character, right? What is it about him that makes him a man after God's own heart? Because I want to be, I want to have that. I want you to have that. You want that. You want me to have that, right? How, how do we grow in this? How do we, as we look back at his life 
As I went back this, this week, as I'm preparing for the sermon, I'm just going back through first, second, first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings. I'm going, what is the moral thread? What is the, what is the thematic thread rather that, that brings us all the way through the story? And I think I picked up on something that I've, I've noticed in the scripture about David that actually ties in the good moments of his life and the horrifying moments of his life. The moments when he's facing the giant and the moments where he's killing his best friend. There's a theme that plays all the way through it. We see it at the very beginning when he's, when he's coming to the battlefield and Goliath is on the battlefield and he's looking down at Goliath and he decides he wants to fight Goliath and he goes to Saul. He goes to King Saul and he says, I want to fight, I want to fight this guy. And then he says something that just really stuck out for me. This is what he says. He said, the Lord... Notice the subject of this sentence. It's not me. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. What I see in this moment is not a man who's just full of his own courage. What I see is a man who is acutely aware of God's power. This is a this is a theme in David's life that as you walk through his life, you start to get a picture of somebody who understands God as real and God as present and God as powerful and God as protector. He's not somebody who walks through life and goes, I wonder what this distant God far off in the future or far off in the ether or far off in space would do. It's he believes he has an acute awareness of God's presence and power and protection right in the midst of his life. Whatever it is he's going through, when he's winning, when he's failing, he knows that God is with him. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went and saw the movie Harriet. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but you should see it. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, And the movie Harriet is really compelling for a number of reasons. But the part as a pastor that really drew my attention is the way that she related to God in the real present sense. Like God was not a concept to her. God was a person and God was with her and God was protecting her and God was providing for her and leading her and guiding her. And if you look at the story, at her story historically, uh, she took about 13 trips down to the south after escaping from slavery. Went about 13 trips, freed about 70 enslaved people, never lost a person on the Underground Railroad, never lost a single person. She ended up joining uh, the Union Army, became a nurse, became a cook, and moved up through the ranks until she became a leader uh, of, of a battalion, went down and led a surge in the south and freed 700 slaves first woman to ever lead uh, lead an army like this in the United States. She led and freed seven. And, and, and when people asked her, like, look, how did you do this? Like, how did someone who did not have any military training, no military background, didn't go to West Point, how did you do this? Her response is fascinating. This was her response. She said, it wasn't me. Somebody say, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. She said, I always told him, I trust you. I trust you. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, but I expect you. Somebody say expect. I expect you to lead me. And he always did. 
There's something about a person who has an acute awareness of God's presence in their life that makes you walk differently. It makes you talk differently. You walk through victory differently. You walk through failure differently because you know that God is with you no matter what. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you in the midst of it. And when you have that, then it's not about you. It's about him. See, that's the thing about David. It was never about him. It was about the God who was with him. He had an acute awareness of God's presence at all times. Somebody needs today in this house on, at Shaw. Somebody needs to hear this today. And this is the theme for your life. This is the theme for your week. God is with you. It's very simple. God is with you. This was the very central insight that I gained even before I became a follower of Jesus. I've talked about it many times. But there was a moment where I suddenly realized and believed for the first time that God was with me. And that began to change everything. Because when God is with you, when God is for us, who can be against us? When God is with you, who can take you down? Because God is going to be there. He's going to protect you. He's going to walk with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to lead you. Now, when you're on his side and when you're doing things the right way, and when you're following his lead, this is even more comforting because, you know, because you're, you're advancing his mission. And so he's actually with you and advancing that mission with you. And sometimes David did that. Sometimes David got it right. Sometimes David made good decisions and the Lord propelled him forward through those decisions because he was making the kinds of decisions that God wanted him to make. When we look at, for instance, after he killed the giant and now uh, Saul got envious and jealous of David and started chasing David all over, you know, all over the countryside. And finally, David and some men hid in a cave. We we studied this a few weeks ago. David and some of his men hid in a cave. Saul came into the cave, became vulnerable, we'll say, in that moment in the cave. And some of David's men said, hey, this is your chance, David. Saul is right there. He's been chasing you. He shouldn't have been chasing you. This is unjust. You need to go after him and just kill him. Take him out right now. And if you remember what happened, David wouldn't do it. David went and cut off a little sliver of, 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 his, of Saul's robe. And then when Saul left the cave and went down into the valley, David came out to the mouth of the cave, looked down into the valley. And if you remember what he said to Saul, it, it, it evokes the same theme. This is what he says. He says to Saul, Saul, may the Lord judge. May the Lord judge. Like I could judge, I could be judge, jury, and I could executioner right now. I mean, I could do the whole thing. May the Lord judge, he said, between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand, he said, will not touch you. So not only was he acutely aware of God's power, but he had complete confidence in God's justice. He knew that even though he was in an unjust situation, There was an unjust situation happening to him in that moment. He said, I am going to trust God's justice in the midst of this. I'm going to trust that the God who is with me will see me forward through this situation. I'm not going to act unjustly to to take care of an unjust situation. I'm going to trust that there's a God whose justice will ultimately rule and reign. I'm going to do everything that I can do justly to to pursue that justice, but I'm not going to take take Saul's blood into my own hands because I'm going to trust God's justice. Some of us have experienced that in our own life where injustice has been done to us. And it's really hard in moments when things that are being done to you are unjust. It's really hard to trust in God's justice because you're not experiencing it in that moment, even when you don't feel it, right? He's working. I, I, um, I, as I used to, one of the first 
one of the first uh, cases that I got when I was a first-year lawyer, uh, and I practiced uh, law with and, and, and a friend of mine who's a member of our church named Jared Boyd. We both got on this same, this same case when we first started, our first year in, 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 uh, in the law practice, first year out of law school, and somebody came to us, uh, uh, a senior associate at the firm, and said, hey, I've got a case for you if you guys want it. It's an international child abduction case under the Hague. Uh, what happened is a, a, a man and a woman were living together in Germany, and they had kids together, and the man uh, uh, took the kids, and he told the woman, hey, I'm going to go to an amusement park about an hour away, and he packed up the kids, and he got on an airplane, and he flew to St. Louis, and he didn't tell her where, where they were, and this woman who had these two kids that she had raised from the time they were born... First day, she thought they were still at an amusement park. Second day, assumed they were at an amusement park. About day three, she started getting really worried. And come to find out, they had left the country and had flown to the United States. And so she became panicked and terrified uh, by the situation. And so she filed with the local police. And somehow or another, it made its way through different courts and got to The Hague. Ended up getting all the way to St. Louis. Got to the firm that I worked at. And somebody decided that it would be a good, good idea to come down to my office and, and Jared Boyd's office and say, Hey, guys, do you want to take this international child abduction case under The Hague your first year out of law school? And I was like, do you have any parking tickets that you need fixed? Because I could totally rock that. Um, but we said, uh, we said, yeah, we, we want to take the case. And we began to research and we began to prepare. And we prepared our, all, all of our direct examinations and our cross-examinations and wrote our briefs and got all, everything dialed in. We got to court and we started going through. And it's a federal court. I mean, you know, we're, we're brand new. Like, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't barely had a suit. I think I got, bought my suit, got a haircut, shined my shoes, like showed up. Like, I got to do this right. We got there. We did everything we knew to do to make this thing right. But at the end of the case, you got to hand it over to the judge. It's in somebody else's hands. And while we're waiting for the judgment, you just don't know how it's going to turn out. You, because human beings are, don't always get it right. I don't know if you've noticed that. People don't always make the right decisions. People don't always make the right call. And so we're there waiting. And thankfully, the judge came back and said, yes, okay, under the Hague Convention, you're not allowed to take your, ch your children and somebody else's children, fly to a different country and not tell them where you went. So the children will return to their mother. She hadn't seen them for like a year. And, and they were able to re-embrace you know, re and be together. And justice was done. But for a minute, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. David is a man who is like, in the midst of injustice, I'm going to trust in God's justice. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of times where I can't see how it's going to work out, I'm going to trust that there's a God who is righteous and who is just. And it's, again, it's not because of me. It's because of him. If you notice, every time we see David, he's talking about God's character, not his own character. He's saying, it's God that is just. May the Lord judge between you and me. Some of you today who are experiencing uh, hardship and injustice in your life, things have been done to you that aren't right. I want to encourage you and say there is a God who is just and who is righteous and his justice shall prevail. His justice will prevail in your life. There is nothing that can stop his justice. He's the judge. The scripture teaches us, and there's an old song that says, I read the back of the book and we win. At the end of the day, God is in charge. God is in control. You're in the palm of his hands, and nothing will ever happen that he won't let happen. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. God is just. And this is comforting. This is comforting when we are on the side of justice. Very comforting.
but when we're on the side of injustice. What about the times when David was on the wrong side of justice? Because it's great to be confident in God's justice, right, when you're just, when you're doing the right thing, and you go, God's going to see me through because I'm doing the right thing, and I know he's going to see me through. But what about when you're on the other side, which David found himself on the other side? David didn't always make the right decision. Sometimes, sometimes God's justice was not so appealing to David because God's justice would have meant that he would have been severely punished for some of the things that he did, and he, and he was. But there were moments when he was on the wrong side of God's justice. So what did he do then? What's interesting is, you know, when we meet him in a, a moment of absolute moral depravity and moral weakness and failure, and he has taken uh, another man's wife and, and he has killed that man. And then the part that blows my mind is that he then brings her into his house and, and becomes her husband, which kind of makes him look like the good guy, you know, and like, man, dude, you, you know, you have so thoroughly, you're so totally compromised in this moment, right? And then Nathan, the, the prophet comes to him and puts his neck out. Nathan says, you know, you, you've sinned, David. You're, you know, he gives him that parable about the man with the, the, the sheep and then the other guy with, with uh, only one sheep and one with many sheep. And he tells this parable and he ultimately turns to David, looks him in the eye and he goes, you're the man. You sinned. You blew it, right? In that moment, David could have gone any direction. He could have gone, he could have equivocated. He could have rationalized. He could have justified. He could have done anything that he wanted to do. But again, we see the thread of what he believes in his heart because he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I, I have sinned against God. He was acutely aware of God's power. He was, he, he was completely confident in God's justice. But in, in a moment when he had failed, he had total trust in God's grace. It all had to do with God. Every part of his life was, I am what I am, but I'm going to trust in who you are. I'm going to put my hope and my confidence and my faith in you. When I'm right, I'm going to put my confidence in you. When I'm wrong, I'm going to put my confidence in you. When I'm doing okay, I'm going to put, when I'm victorious, I'm going to trust you. When I'm failing, I'm going to trust you. Jesus tells a story that captures this, this theme uh, when he, in, in the Gospel of Luke, and he's, he tells a story about two men that go and worship God in the temple. And many of you know the parable. He says one of them was a religious leader. One of them was a, a Pharisee, and, and he was doing everything right. And he was living by the rules. But the one thing that he wasn't doing right is that he was relying upon his own righteousness. He was trusting in his own goodness. And he was looking down his nose at people that weren't as good as him. He said, and then there was another man who was just a, just a wreck. This guy was beat up from the feet up and just a mess and just a moral. You know, he was a, he was a tax collector and he just was a bad guy. And he said, they both went to the temple to pray. And one of them came up close and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm so righteous. I thank you that I'm so good. I thank you that I'm not like a murderer. I'm not like a sinner. I'm not an adulterer. And by the way, I'm not like that guy. That guy over there who I can just, I just know this guy's bad. And he said, the, the prayer of the other guy, he said, actually, it's interesting. He said he stood far away. He didn't even get close to the front. He stood far away, said he beat his breast. And he said, God, help me because I'm a sinner. Help me. I'm just going to rely on your grace. I'm just going to rely on your mercy. And Jesus said, who do you think was justified, right? The man is justified who's relying upon 
God's grace. It, it's interesting to me that as we look at David's life, it's not about David. It turns out that it's not about David. Because the reality is you and I are so much like David. Uh, we, we are sometimes courageous and we're sometimes cowardly. And, and, we're, and we're sometimes obedient, we're sometimes rebellious. And we're sometimes generous, we're sometimes selfishness. But that's not what matters. What matters is not who we are, it's who he is. It's who God is. Are we aware of his presence in our life? Can we open up our life and say, God, I trust you. When I'm, when, I'm, when I'm doing well, I trust you. When I'm doing poor, I'm going to just, I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket. I'm just going to open my heart. I'm going to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and body. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to pursue you with everything I've got. You're the one, God, not me. Because of that, the scripture says David was a man after God's own heart. And at the very end of his life, it says that David rested with his ancestors. After this tumultuous life of highs and lows, good and bad, he rested with his ancestors. He was buried in the city of David. So his son Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. David left a legacy. He left a legacy. He left a legacy of acknowledging the presence of God no matter what the situation no matter what the circumstance. When it's good, when it's bad, it doesn't matter. It's about God. It just doesn't matter. God is the one. He's with me. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. And what I, one of the things I love about David is he actually captured the essence of this theme, this, this trait of his. He captured it in a song that he wrote. And he wrote many, many songs. And he captured it in the lyrics of a song that many of you know the lyrics of this song. And if you don't know the lyrics, uh, I'm going to put them up on the screen and you can just read them out loud. But I want to invite each and every one of us to read the lyrics of this song that I believe captures the essence of who God is for you when you're doing great and when you're doing poorly, when you're, when you're, when you're courageous and when you're weak. It's the essence of who God is. It's the song that many of you know. It says this, the Lord said out with me, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Would you bow your head and let's just pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that it's about you and not about us. We thank you, God, that you are ever present in our time of need. We thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you, God, that those of us who are pursuing righteousness and justice, you're with us. Those of us who have failed and floundered, you're with us. God, I thank you that you are not with us just individually, but you're with us as a church. 
I thank you, God, that you're with us as a city. I thank you, thank you that you are with us uh, as a nation, as a world. You are present with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. We open our heart, our mind, our soul, our life to you. I pray for those of us who are here today who have been sitting on the sidelines, wondering about God, thinking about you in the abstract. I pray that they would step forward today and make a commitment to follow you. I pray that those of us who have wandered off and forgotten who you are in our life, that we would open up our heart and receive you and that you would be present. Your presence and your power, your protection would be with us right here, right now. I pray, Lord God, for those of us who are tracking, who are following you, that they would not be discouraged, that they would not be weary in well-doing, but they would trust in your justice and your righteousness to see us through. God, I pray for each and every person here. Let us be a voice for your justice and and a voice for your grace. Let us be a conduit of your love, Lord God, to every person we meet. We give you all honor, Lord, for who you are, all praise and all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Somebody said, amen, amen.